Well, our sermon text this evening is Psalm number 70. So if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the 70th Psalm, and I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 70, give ear to God's Word. It says, To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. And he says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them be, let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us to us as a light to our feet, as a lamp to our path, that in it we find the, the power of God unto salvation in your gospel. And we pray once again that you would teach us your word, work in us by your Holy Spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants here. Listen, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, as you could tell as we were reading it together, Psalm 70, the Psalm of David, is rather short and to the point. Uh, you know, very often the Psalms, not all of them, but some of them have uh, what we call a superscription or a title above them. That's actually a part of the inspired text. Sometimes they don't say much. It'll say a Psalm of David, a song. Uh, this one says to the choir master of David. Uh, but it doesn't tell us what was happening. You know, sometimes the Psalms superscription will tell you this psalm was written when he was on the run from Absalom or when he was on the run from Saul. It gives us kind of historical background that helps us understand why he's saying what he's saying. This one is not one of those. This one doesn't tell us what was going on. It doesn't tell us who his enemies were uh, that were seeking his life and doing him harm. It just tells us that it's for the memorial offering and that David wrote it and it was to be sung. Um, it doesn't tell us again who these enemies were who delighted in his harm and suffering evil. Uh, in a lot of ways, Psalm 70, not because it's so brief, but in some ways it gets shortchanged. Uh, many commentators kind of skim over it lightly, and the reason for that is that Psalm 70, uh, maybe as I was reading it, it kind of rang a bell as I was reading it to you, uh, Psalm 70 is essentially a repetition of part of Psalm 40, which is a very well-known psalm in the Psalter. And so what some commentators have chosen to do is they kind of say, Look at that one. You know, I already wrote my my thoughts on that section when I wrote on Psalm 40, so go back and read that. So, you know, I had a stack of commentaries on my desk uh, during the week this week, and I thought, oh, this is going to take me quite a while to read through all these. Well, it didn't take quite a while to read through all these because they all just kept saying, go back to Psalm 40 and see what I wrote wrote there. Uh, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but not not by much. Well, Psalm 70 repeats just about word for word, not quite word for word, Psalm number 40, verses 13 through 17. And so there's some slight variations to it. The names of God are different in it, uh, but its essential message is the same. Now, maybe you might uh, see that, and maybe you were already aware of that. You might think to yourself, you know, why the repetition? Why does God's word do that here in the Psalms? You know, were they trying to, you know, like, if you ever went to college or if you had to write papers for high school, sometimes your instructor or your teacher would say, this is a, you know, the dreaded 15-page paper. You know, 10-page paper, you can kind of 
make do with that, and sometimes you you f- give a little fluff to it to make it quite reach the ten pages. The the Bible's not like that. There's no filler in the scriptures. The Psalms, you know, David and the writers of the Psalms weren't saying, well, we have to get to an even 150, so let's just copy and paste. They didn't do that back then. Uh, this is here for a reason. And you might know there's quite a bit of repetition in some ways in the scriptures in general. And I think the reason for that is there's a lot of things in the Bible that, simply put, they just bear repeating. We're a little slow in some ways. They need to be reminded of certain things. I know I speak for myself. I am. Who's sufficient for these things? Well, I'm not, and I'm awful slow at times, slow to learn. You might know in your Old Testament that some of the history of the kingdom of Israel uh, the kingdoms, uh, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and, and Judah, uh, that you read of in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, some of that, not word for word, but some of the substance of that is repeated again in First and Second Chronicles. Maybe as you've, you know, if you've ever read through the Bible in a year, maybe you've gotten to those books and thought, wait, didn't I just read this two books ago? Why is this in here again? Well, it's there for a reason. It's there for our benefit. The Apostle Paul, you might know, repeats much of what he says in the book of Ephesians. He repeats it again, sometimes almost word for word, in the book of Colossians. You know, some some liberal, you know, unbelieving, I would say, commentators and scholars, they use that as evidence that, that Paul didn't write them. I remember reading a, an introduction in the New Testament where the writer said, well, this can't be really scripture because, you know, Paul repeats himself and, and he doesn't usually do that, as if he knew Paul's habits and that Paul couldn't possibly repeat himself. I've, I've been a pastor for about nine years here now, and I'm sure some of you have been here long enough to hear me repeat myself quite a few times. Not that I'm the Apostle Paul, but we have a tendency sometimes to do that, sometimes with very good reason. You also might know, it's, it should be rather obvious, that we have not one, but four gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, his life, and death in the New Testament. In fact, three of those Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might know they're called the synoptic Gospels. And not to be a a vocabulary lesson, but what does synoptic mean? It it means same view. Optic is what, you know, you go to the optometrist to check your eyes. And syn, S-Y-N, is a prefix that means together or with. So it's these three Gospels basically tell the same story from the same point of view. not It's not word for word the same, but it essentially says the same thing really four times in the Gospels and elsewhere in the New Testament. God has put all of those different kinds of repetitions in his word there for a reason. They're there for your benefit and mine. They're there for our edification in the faith. Now the title of this psalm, you know, uh, Hebrew titles, Hebrew uh, scriptures, to me anyway, can be somewhat difficult to to translate. The title of this particular psalm, Psalm 70, in some ways is not the easiest to understand what it's getting at. Uh, but I think it might tell us something of the reason for this repetition if we allow it to do so. The ESV, you might have heard when I was reading, it says simply for the memorial offering. And to us, we most of us kind of scratch our heads and say, I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of that or why it would say that. But if you have an old King James or a new King James version, it renders the title as this, or superscription as this. Something like, to bring to remembrance. To bring to remembrance. And Matthew Henry, the great Puritan Bible commentator, writes this of that title. He says, the title tells us that this psalm was designed to bring to remembrance, that is, to put God in remembrance of his mercy and promises. 
For so we are said to do when we pray to him and plead with him. And he quotes Isaiah uh, Isaiah 43, 26, where it says, God says in, through the prophet, God says, put me in remembrance. Now, God doesn't forget, and, and Matthew Henry says that. He says, not that the eternal mind needs a remembrancer or a reminder, but this honor he is pleased to put upon the prayer of faith, or rather to put himself, that's David, to put himself and others in remembrance of former afflictions, that we may never be secure, but always in expectation of troubles, and of former devotions, that when the clouds return after the rain, we may have recourse to the same means which we have formerly found effectual for fetching in comfort and relief. Let me boil that down a little better, a little, a little more simpler for our not-so-old uh, minds here. Um, he, he's saying, he's reminding us and reminding himself of things that God did in the past. When he cried out to God for relief from his troubles, he's reminding himself, these things happen. Trials shall come, persecution shall come. They've come in the past, and how did God rescue me last time? What did I do when it happened last time? I cried out to God, and what did God do? God heard me and, and rescued me and had, had mercy upon me. So he's saying, psalms like this, even their repetition are given that we might be reminded, that we might put ourselves in remembrance of these things so we're equipped to handle trials. Henry goes on to say that here we're also taught that it's acceptable before God for us to use the same words in prayer that we've often used before, even as the Lord Jesus himself, as an example, prayed the same thing three times in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verse 44. Remember, Jesus said, If not my will, but your will, but if it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He prayed that three times. And so there's nothing wrong with us praying in some ways the same things in repetition. So let us learn from this psalm together that we should all, always be in remembrance of, of our former trials, the things that God has seen you through in your life, and also be put in remembrance of God's past mercies in those trials, that you and I might be better equipped to seek God's mercies again in our present or in our future trials and tribulations and tests of our faith. Well, the first thing you see in this psalm of David, in, in verse 1, is David's cry for deliverance. David's cry for deliverance from his enemies. In verse 1, he writes, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now, David's situation was not something that, that he could wait on. It's something that was desperate. He needed deliverance now, and so he doesn't waste any time in crying out to God. He gets right to the point. You know, have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever had some situation come in your life, whether it be physical danger, illness, any kind of situation in your life where you kind of lost all formality and decorum and you just cried out to God for deliverance. Maybe it was when you came to Christ for salvation. Maybe your guilt of your sin weighed heavily upon your heart and mind and you you had, you had wrestled with God and you just cried out to God for mercy to save you through Jesus Christ. You ever just cried out to God for his mercy and help as if your very life depended upon it? You know, sometimes that's quite literally the case for some of God's people all around the world today that suffer violent persecution. And so he, David, asked God to make haste. In a sense, hurry up. Hurry up and save me. Make haste to me, he says. In verse 5, he repeats it. Hasten to me, O God. Well, here David shows us by example that proper form, so to speak, is not always necessary in our prayers. 
you know, if prayer, it's been said, prayer is the heart's cry to God. If that's the case, it's fitting that in time of trouble or urgency that our prayers reflect that fact. James Montgomery Boyce writes the following. He says, we are not always in situations like this, of course. So our prayer should usually be less hurried and cover far more ground, especially for the needs of other people. When we are in desperate need, however, there is nothing wrong with getting to the point and praying urgently for exactly what we need, as David does. Now, there are some, I think, some important lessons for us as believers in Christ to learn here. First of all, you and I must remember that sometimes God brings even his choicest saints, even his well-beloved children in Jesus Christ, into the fiery furnace of trials and even persecution. And it's not a sign that God has abandoned us. It's not a sign that God doesn't love us or loves them less or loves us less. Now, the long-storied history of the church is filled with examples of this, even to our own day. You know, if you read the news, if you read some of the news coming out of Nigeria, it seems every other day or so we're hearing more reports of of Muslim extremists murdering Christians of all ages uh, in cold blood. And you got to think they're crying out to God to hasten to them. The saints of God have been praying like that since since the beginning in some ways and probably will be doing so until Christ returns. We should take to heart the exhortation of the Apostle Peter where he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Peter writes this, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And Peter's saying, don't act like something weird's happening. I mean, it feels weird. It feels like it shouldn't be happening. It's not something that should happen in some ways. But he's saying, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. And why does he say it comes upon you? To test you. It's a test of our faith. And he says something very odd. Only a Christian would understand this at all. He says, don't be surprised, but what does he tell you to do? Rejoice. I don't know about you, but that's not my first my first inclination when I go through a trial is to rejoice. It's not to, to say, yay, oh good. But he says, no, rejoice, and why is that? Rejoice and be glad, uh, that you may be rejoice and be glad because you share in Christ's sufferings in some way. And in some odd, strange way, when you share in Christ's sufferings, it's an evidence, or it should be an evidence to you, that you will share in Christ's glory. It means the world is recognizing in some small way Christ in you. What did Jesus say? Don't be surprised if the world hates you, they hate me. If they love me, they'd love you, but they don't because you're not of the world. I'm paraphrasing. Don't be surprised when trials come into your lives as Christians. Don't be surprised when your faith is tested. Instead, rejoice that in some small way you might be sharing in Christ's sufferings. And again, that's a reminder that you will share in his glory at Christ's return as well. Second lesson. Let us remember to look to God in prayer first and foremost for our deliverance and our help. You know, too often, I think, uh, many of us, we try to handle everything ourselves first. Or look elsewhere for help first and make prayer kind of the last resort when all else fails. 
you know, if we do our, do our thing, do whatever we can do, and then we find we're at the end of our rope, then we'll pray. Well, let the psalmist show us that, as Rob mentioned from Second Corinthians, we aren't sufficient for these things. We foolishly think that we are at times, but we're not. Let us go to God first and foremost, not as our last resort, but as our first resort. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to benefit from our trials in some way, at least by letting them teach us to be people of prayer. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17-18, he says, Pray without ceasing, and then he even says, And give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now you could say that when difficulties and trials and tests of our faith, if they get us praying, they actually do us much good. If the worst thing that happens is your trials get you praying, God's doing you a favor. He's showing you that you are not sufficient for these things. But who is? God is. He's more than sufficient for these things. Well, the second thing we see in this psalm is not just David's cry to God for deliverance from his enemies, but also his cry for God's just judgment against those very enemies. Look at verses 2 and 3. David writes, Let them, them, those were his enemies, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! You know, when somebody says that, it's, it's, it's kind of a way of saying, Gotcha! I've got him where I want him. And David's saying, Those who say that of God's people, of me and others, let them be turned back because of their shame. Let them fall into their own trap. You know, in many ways, David's cry for deliverance and his plea for God's just judgment against his enemies, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, aren't they? How does God often deliver his people throughout the scriptures and throughout history from their enemies? By judging those enemies. When you think of the book of Exodus, you think of the the, uh, ten plagues, you think of the parting of the Red Sea, how did God deliver his people from slavery in Egypt with an outstretched arm? He led them out, but he judged their enemies. He drowned, as the Song of Moses said, the horse and the rider he has drowned in the sea. He drowned all of Pharaoh's chariots and all of his, his army in the sea. He judged his enemies and saved his people. David prays to God that his enemies who were seeking his life, you know, these weren't minor inconveniences. You know, David is not saying to pray for God's just judgment upon those who annoy you. He's not saying that you should pray for God's just judgment upon those who inconvenience you and I. He's saying to pray for God's just judgment on those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ in a way. He's saying they were seeking his life, and he prays that God might make those who sought his life be put to shame and confusion. He's asking that their plots against David's life not be allowed to succeed, and that they, and not him, would be put to shame instead of being able to triumph over him and gain gain glory against the God of Israel. And so as we've seen last time we looked at Psalm 69, this is a a prayer of imprecation of sorts. And what's a prayer of imprecation? Psalm 69 has one of the most uh, frightful imprecatory prayers in all of the Psalter. But an imprecatory prayer is one of praying for God's just judgment against the wicked. That's what that is. Now those prayers might make some people uncomfortable, but they're found throughout the book of Psalms. They're found in the book of Revelation. They're found in all kinds of places in the Bible. Now, these might make us a little bit uncomfortable, but I think that's probably because we are too comfortable in the first place. 
I think if the prayers of imprecation in the scriptures make us uncomfortable, it's a sign that in some ways we are just too comfortable as it is in this life. If you and I were to suffer intense, violent persecution as our brothers and sisters in the Lord in places like Nigeria and elsewhere are suffering, even right now, laying down their lives, spilling their blood for their testimony to Christ, I think we would probably understand imprecatory praying just fine. And I think we would feel much differently about praying in the same fashion as David does here in Psalm 70 and elsewhere. And again, it's worth reminding us of this as well. When you find these kinds of prayers in the book of Psalms and elsewhere, what is David doing here? David is leaving vengeance to God. David doesn't take it into his own hands. David doesn't seek vengeance on his own. Praying this way is entrusting it to God. It's not to seek vengeance on his own. He's entrusting himself to the mercy and just judgment of God. And that is the example for us to do, to follow as well. We must entrust ourselves when things are going rough, whether it be persecution or or anything else. We must entrust ourselves to the providence of God and his just judgment and his mercy upon us. You know, when we see the church being harassed and hindered and even persecuted in various ways, what are we to do? You know, frankly, sometimes the enemies of the church seem far beyond our ability to defeat or to overcome. I can't help but wonder if sometimes perhaps, you know, maybe God allows these things to come into our lives in some ways, at least to remind us of our weakness and of our need for his mercy and grace and help in time of need. You know, people sometimes, I think, foolishly but well-intentionally say things like, God will never give you something that's too big for you to handle. They must not read the Bible who think something like that. Of course he does. You'd never pray. Why would you ever have a reason to pray if you can handle everything on your own? We're not sufficient for these things. In our own nation right now, you might think of, you know, what can the church do about the oppression, the overreach by a tyrannical government that's getting more and more tyrannical, in my opinion? Where is our recourse when even the Supreme Court of our land effectively rules that a state government, such as Nevada, may impose a more severe restriction upon the church there and places of worship than they do such apparently vital places such as gambling casinos. That's not just. That's not right. What are we to do when liquor stores, pot shops, and abortion clinics are ruled as essential businesses while other businesses that people are doing just to make a living and churches continue to be hindered from gathering safely from worship? At times, I don't know if you felt this way, but I've been feeling this way more and more, it seems as if there's no earthly help suitable for these things. What are you supposed to do? What what are we to do as God's people and as the church? Well, here's what we aren't to do. We don't take matters into our own hands. We are not, and we should not be, the ones rioting. We don't commit violence in order to get our way as the world does, even if it works. It's not the right thing for God's people to do. We seek the Lord. We pray. We pray for God's will, for his mercy, and at times for God's just judgment. You know, many who oppose the church, many who hate the gospel of Christ, they may laugh and scoff at that. Certainly those who have made themselves out to be the enemies of the cross of Christ, in some cases might scoff and laugh at the idea that the church gathered together in prayer could ever hope to do anything to stop them in their tracks. 
but they would be sadly mistaken. It reminds me of a quote from an old Puritan writer named William Gurnall. He has a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's about this thick. It's about 1,200 pages long. And it's a commentary. Puritans tended to be a little bit long-winded in some ways, in a good way. It's about 1,200 pages long, and it's about, I think, eleven ver- a commentary on about 11 verses from Ephesians chapter 6, that chapter about the armor of God, the complete armor of God, and spiritual warfare that the church is involved in. And in that book, he has a section where he warns the wicked, not that the wicked were going to read that book, I don't think, but he warns the wicked not to get the saints of God, the church, engaged In praying against them, he says this, Take heed that by your implacable hatred to the truth and church of God, you do not engage her prayers against you. And then he goes on to say this, The prayers of the saints, and he's talking about just Christians, not we're not Roman Catholics here, The prayers of the saints are more to be feared than an army of 20,000 men in the field. That's not what the world thinks. The world's much more afraid of an army of 20,000 in the field. Now, why does he say that? On what basis does he make that observation and that warning? He points to the example of Esther. In Esther 4, verse 16, whose prayers hastened Haman's destruction on his own gallows. Remember the story of Esther and Haman? He wanted the Jews dead. He built a, a big gallows to hang Mordecai on. And who got hung on it? Haman did. He also mentions Hezekiah's prayers against Sennacherib in Isaiah chapter 37, which uh, he says brought his huge host to the slaughter and fetched an angel from heaven to do the execution in one night upon them. So he draws examples from Scripture to prove his point. And so I ask you this evening, do we believe that? Do we believe that prayer isn't about us having the power to do anything? Prayer is seeking God's mercy. Do we believe, do we believe that God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Do we believe that that the prayers of God's people are more to be feared than an army of 20,000 men in the field? You know, protest peacefully, vote, sign petitions, make your, your opinion known. All these things are fine, but those aren't our first recourse. Those aren't our most powerful recourse. We pray. We gather and we pray and trust God's just judgment. Do you and I believe that our God is well pleased to hear and answer the prayers of his people when we cry out to him for mercy? We should because he is. God is far more inclined to hear and answer than we are to pray. Our God and Savior is more than able to put the enemies of his church to shame and confusion. He's more than able to turn them back and bring their plots to nothing and to bring them to dishonor our Lord Jesus, who rules over all things from the right hand of God for the sake of his church, is willing and able and does defend his church. It doesn't always look like it to us, but he always defends his church. Remember in the book of Acts, when Stephen, that first martyr in the book of Acts, when he was being stoned to death, what does it say? What does Stephen tell the crowd he saw? I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Not sitting, standing. Now, Stephen was still killed. And we might think, oh, he let that one slip. Jesus let that one slip. Why didn't he save Stephen? The whole book of Acts would have been different, and it would have been different in a bad way. He used that martyrdom, the blood of that saint, to bring to pass the Apostle Paul. 
and all the people that heard the gospel through him. So Jesus knows what he's doing, even in the things that we don't understand what's going on. Well, the last thing that we see in our text here in Psalm 70 is that in all this, both in David's cry for mercy and deliverance, as well as for his cry of for God's just judgment upon his enemies, his concern was still not just for his own ease or comfort. His concern was still, in all that, in all of his trials, David's concern was still for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Look at verse 4. First, David prays for his own his own salvation and deliverance, and he prays for judgment upon his enemies. And then he says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Here his attention in prayer turns from the wicked to the church, to his brothers and sisters in the faith. He prays that all who seek God would rejoice and be glad in him when they see God's answers to his prayers for deliverance and his judgment against the wicked. He prayed that God's people who love his salvation might see that, and what would they say? They'd say evermore, forever, God is great. Not David is great. Hey, well, God really loves David. David must be a great guy. No, God is great. Look what God did for David as the head of his church on this earth at the time. Those who love God's salvation love the God of that salvation as well, and love nothing more than that his great name might be exalted and magnified in answers to our prayers. That's that's the purpose in some ways. The main purpose of our prayers is God's glory. We prayed in the Lord's Prayer. What was the first request? Hallowed be thy name. Let your name be shown to be holy and and revered. Is that how you and I pray? I confess it's not always how I pray. Maybe it's not the way you pray all the time either, but it should be. Even in your hurried, desperate prayers, our concern must be turned towards the good of the church and the glory of God, that God might be praised. And David's cry for mercy here in the psalm, you could say in some ways, is also a picture of every sinner's need for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 again. He says, but I, you know, God is great, but then he turns to himself again. But I am what? I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God, you are my help. And my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Now, outside of Christ, every person on this earth is poor and needy because they're a sinner before a holy God. Every person that's ever walked this earth is a sinner. It stands in need of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And he is the only, to use the words of the psalm, he himself, the Lord Jesus, is the only help and deliverer who is able to save us from our sins. So I ask this evening, have you come to that realization yourself? Have you discovered that your greatest need in life and in eternity is that your sins against a holy God need to be atoned for and forgiven? Do you know that your sins have separated you from God if you're outside of Christ and placed you justly under his holy wrath? For the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died in the place of sinners on the cross. He paid the terrible price that we owe because of our sins against God, and he bore the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't have to if we turned to him. And he was raised from the dead on that third day for our justification that you and I might know for certain that the price for our salvation was paid in full. If you're outside of Christ and you're still in your sins today, then you must repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. You must trust in Christ alone for mercy, forgiveness, and eternal salvation from your sins. 
Jesus himself says in John 6.37 that whoever comes to him, he will by no means cast out. You know, if you have a grasp, even a small grasp of your sin and your guilt before a holy God and you say to yourself, why would God ever save me? That's why Jesus says things like that. He died to save actual sinners. And he says, the one who comes to him, he'll by no means ever cast out. And then may you too learn to love the salvation of the Lord and say with the rest of God's people, God is great and praise God for his deliverance of you from your sins. Amen. Let's, let's pray.